mics are running, hopefully. The podcast is up and running somehow, and Mr. Olinchik is regretting every life choice that brought him to be here listening to us stutter through our own names. I'm Sam. And I'm Brian, and we're back with episode two of the PPC podcast's third season. Fun, film, sport, literature, and an obscene amount of editing from Elaine. All in an episode's work on the creme de la creme of transition year podcasting. So what have we got for you on this jam-packed episode, Sam? Well, Brian, there's certainly a literary slant to this programme. And while the old adage that poetry has its own jurisdiction may well be true, I think that a lot of listeners may well come away from listening to this show with a stronger grow for the creative word. We have some surprise guests, some famous outside the walls of Prez, and indeed some famous inside, making an appearance with their choice of favourite poems. Our big interview is a standout this episode. Ian Crowley is in discussion with renowned poet Bernard O'Donoghue, a man who left Prez in 1962, went on to become a professor of medieval English in Oxford, and was the winner of the prestigious Whitbread Prize for Poetry in 1995. To add a little seasoning to the show, and honour Bernard, we have asked some teachers here in the school and some special guests to choose their favourite poem, and indeed we have two budding poets among the staff in Prez, Mr O'Riordan and Miss Whelan, who will read their own poems. And then, from literary heavyweights to the lifting of heavyweights, we have the remarkable story of current Leaving Search student Thomas McCarty, currently the world number one powerlifter at under 23's level. And Kino Manu reviews Martin Scorsese's classic film, Taxi Driver. And we have comedy as Roy Keane, Jamie Carragher and Mick McCarthy discuss the late arrival of the junior search results in the Sky Sports studio. Stay tuned for some remarkable radio here on PBC Podcast. But first, to kick our show off, it's over to Ronan McCarthy as he delves into the dystopian world of George Orwell. What year have we got, Brian? Uh, it's 2023, Sam. Wrong, Brian. It's 1984. Take it away, Ronan. Imagine a world without joy, without passion, without art, history, or even music. A world in which every action, every single thought, is controlled to conform to an ideology, where privacy has been abolished and all are under constant surveillance where parents are terrified of their own children lest they report them to the secret police, where each person is compelled to devote their being to the sole purpose of serving the state. This is the world of 1984. 1984 was written in 1949 by author and journalist George Orwell, reflecting on the political and social trends present at the time in the USSR, the Eastern Bloc, and the only recently fallen Nazi Germany, and even, to some extent, in his home country of England, George Orwell imagined a scenario, then 35 years in the future, in which these ideas and movements had been taken to their extreme and dominated the entire world. In the world of 1984, after a period of revolutions and nuclear conflicts, the world has been divided into three megastates, Eurasia, East Asia, and our setting. Oceania, which is composed of the countries that were once known as America, Britain, Ireland and Australia. Britain has been renamed to Airstrip 1. However, according to those who live there, it has always been known as Airstrip 1. Airstrip 1, along with the rest of Oceania, is controlled by a single party known as INGSOC. 
Ingsoc is not like any normal political party. They do not hold elections. They don't have representatives, nor any kind of parliament. They don't appear to have any leaders beyond a symbolic figurehead known only as Big Brother. Ingsoc could better be described as a church. Ingsoc alone holds the truth. Ingsoc is the truth. Anyone who contradicts Ingsoc's teachings, even if only in their mind, is guilty of thought crime and will be taken away by the thought police, never to be seen again. Take, for example, the war. If Oceania is at war with Eurasia and allied with East Asia, then Ingsoc teaches this has always been the case, and if anyone ever doubts or questions it, they must disappear. And if Oceania becomes at war with East Asia and allied with Eurasia, then that has always been so. And once again, anyone who says otherwise vanishes off the face of the earth. Why do people accept this? Because they have been taught their whole lives that the very definition of truth is whatever the party says it is. So how could the party ever be wrong? This philosophy of the truth being brought into existence and completely changed by the whim of the party is summarised in Ingsoc's official motto. War is peace. Freedom is slavery. Ignorance is strength. In the novel, we follow the character of Winston Smith, a journalist who has lived most of his life under the thumb of the party. He despises the party and Oceania and everything they stand for. But he doesn't despise them for the reasons one might think. It's not because of the party's supreme control over the individual, their constant surveillance or their manipulation of truth. No, Winston detests life under the party because it's dull. He hates that every day in his life is exactly the same. That the skies are always grey from smog and the ash from bombings. That the lift in his apartment is always broken. He hates that there's always a shortage of razor blades. That the chocolate and the coffee are always of a terrible quality. That the only films in theatres are boring propaganda films. And that his greatest pleasure in life is scratching a varicose ulcer. In the novel, Winston rebels against the party. But this isn't a violent rebellion. He doesn't rebel with an army. He rebels by writing in an ancient diary with an elegant fountain pen and admiring the cream-coloured pages, by purchasing on the black market a glass paperweight with a bit of coral in its centre and by secretly humming the tune to an old playground rhyme and by standing in the middle of a field where no one is watching. These tiny moments of joy make Winston feel like a human being. And this is what the party fears most of all. Ingsoc, Winston believes, survives by stripping its citizens of their individuality, their humanity. I first decided to read 1984 because I was intrigued by its premise and its title. I found the idea of this dystopian vision of our world, ruled by a tyrannical party which oversees all aspects of its subjects' lives in the year 1984 of all times, deeply intrigued me. I've always loved science fiction, and so what drew me in was the futuristic and worldly elements to it, like the all-seeing cameras in everyone's homes and the clocks that go up to 13. However, this wasn't what kept me invested in the book and what stayed with me long after I'd finished. What left me truly astounded at this masterpiece of a book was its story. The simple story about a few ordinary human beings trying to survive this despicable world, attempting unsuccessfully to hold on to the minuscule things that make life worth living, that make them feel human. Despite having been written over 70 years ago, Orwell's 1984 is still greatly relevant today, with far-right and authoritarian politicians and parties gaining power in Europe and the Americas, 
the human rights abuses brought on by Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the Taliban's taking over of Afghanistan, and the spreading of misinformation and conspiracy theories through the internet, there is always the fear and the genuine possibility that a world like 1984 could come into being. But Orwell not only offers us a warning, but also a message of hope. For if people can still cling to those tiny moments of joy that make life worth living, if they can maintain that basic instinct that life could be better than it is, ought to be better than it is, then tyranny and authoritarianism will never prevail. I'm Ronan McCarthy, and that is why you should read 1984. Well, that was really wonderful, Ronan. Uh, have you read it yourself yet, Brian? I haven't yet, Sam, but I can't lie. Ronan's passion has rubbed off a bit on me there. It's definitely going to have to be added to the list. Oh, definitely. So now, sticking with the literary team on this episode, let's turn to poetry. With our big interview coming up, we asked teacher Mr. Brian McMahon, rugby fanatic, proud Limerick man and Gwail Gore to choose his favourite poem. Well, Falcher Stock of Oster, Cain Don Aronig too, August Oberlin, Cain Fallbader. Well, Cain Don Aronig mean a seerse lechaner or dawn. Mars all did, because Marta Raita got Rugus Tog Megarlim Nias, Goldoch, and Hudson Nuggets. You're a vain girl in the Gummers, Mefas, Nias, so Force and Grad and Gail Gate in Art, or Van Balaborn and Gorkik. Agus is Asnat son, a Hardig and Phil, Sean Rear Dawn. Agus, I suppose, Norawas Aon, Agus, it's even a big shul people high, takes me shul a relic government and Hanway Trester and, um, Uigso, the Kutchan Rear Dawn, Agusan Uigson, Tashkrifa, and Mana like Neil Unum Akbaul, the Corpson Mahinchur, Agus, I suppose, on Urgavahame son, I suppose, Krakishin Sin, the Kud Filioch, the Kud Rear Dawn, Unum. Yeah, so it just always sort of intrigued me from the moment I saw that statement on his uh, gravestone, Man was the Rear Dawnock, and what his poetry was about, and I've read many of his poems, and I've read many different poets through my study of Irish over the years. But I suppose Searsha is the one that stands out most in my mind as as being my most favourite poem. It's like what we all want and what we all think we want is this ultimate freedom. But he talks about ultimate freedom being a not very nice place, being a very very lonely place, and in point of fact, it goes back to a great lovely Irish saying like our Scarhela or Varnanina, which means like we're all so dependent on one another and I suppose I'm a man who loves company and this really like you know it's true like this is what the Irishness is about well that sounds incredible sir now I I'll let you take it away Searsha Lashon Riordan Raimishius Imas Nadina the Huel Machus is Raimishius Nacht Raimishius Lord Dirsha on Minib Hirsha Tag Lunso. Is Kanglodan Hundert Smointe, Tag Drana Mohimpel, Snugness. Is Lorgoid and Champel Realte, Bin Lon the Heine, Egaumfele. Is Lorgoid Koluder Heine, Nar Chlacht Jeev, Searsha, Na Uigness. Is the Estudation's Killing Smointe, A Valor Teeter, Mararigod. Is where a gown McShee, the Heine, Nar Saulig Jeev, Lo, Achmach Smointe. A van it live the lowest eiche, is beg me ishel, is beg me dealish, the vor snab swinte. Mar the holy the fast minton, ig fast gan chimsha, gan vasserhocht. Is the hugus gan mukshi gafirfer, dun rod tashinte, dun gach machrod. 
Brian McMahon there with Saoirse by Sean O'Reardon. Let's hear now from someone not quite as famous. Peaky Blinders, Hollywood film star and of course former Prez boy. Killian Murphy came into the school some years back and recorded his favourite poem for a project Mr Olinchik did with his class called Poetry for the Blind. To a friend whose work has come to nothing by W.B. Gates. Now all the truth is out. Be secret and take defeat from any brazen throat for how can you compete being honour bred with one who were approved he lies were neither shamed in his own nor in his neighbour's eyes bred to a harder thing than triumph turn away and like a laughing string whereon mad fingers play amid a place of stone be secret and exult because of all things known that is most difficult. Incredible stuff there, Sam. That definitely awakened something in me. What do you think of it? Absolutely, Brian. It was incredible to hear him talk about how that poem was so important to him. And now I think without further ado, we should turn to the big interview. And what a privilege it is to have our next guest join us here on the PBC podcast. Our own Ian Crowley spoke with Bernard O'Donoghue. Hello. Today we're honoured and privileged to have an interview with Bernard O'Donoghue. This former press boy has spent decades teaching medieval and Irish literature at Wadham and Magdalen Colleges, Oxford. His collections of poetry have garnered critical acclaim, with him being nominated twice for the T.S. Eliot Award. He won the Whitbread Poetry Prize in 1995 for his collection Gunpowder, and one of his poems, Terconatus, is featured on the Leaving Cert curriculum. Hi Bernard, how are you doing today? Very well, Ian. Nice to hear you. Thank you for doing this interview. So how did it come about that you attended Prez, having grown up in Cullen? Well, it was, uh, it was for kind of very particular reason, really. I did, I did interest search at the, um, at the excellent local secondary school in Mill Street, um, Clash de Padre by name. But um, my parents, particularly my mother, particularly had in mind that I should um, do engineering, which was the, the thing at the time, really. And of course, Prez was, was um, a recognised place for uh, outstanding maths teaching and so on. But we, they didn't do um, honours maths leaving at all at school in Mill Street. So if I was going to t- follow that kind of course, uh, I had to move, really. And my sisters were both at, um, at living in Cork, one at UCC and one teaching at um, Mary's of the Isles, was actually. So we had a flat together. And I did, so I just went as a day boy to, to Prez. How did you move out of the sort of engineering path into well, that, that, that's literature? Well, story there as well. And the, the, great, the great thing about the engineering path was, was Freddie Holland, you know, the, the exceptional maths teacher at Press, and he really was wonderful. Um, and I, I was, uh, in my early kind of numerate days, I was pretty good at maths. So I think I hit, I hit a kind of glass ceiling a bit. But the main thing that happened was I came under the influence of Dan Donovan, or at least I came into the environment of Dan Donovan who taught both um, English and Irish when I was in fifth year in Prez. I was completely blown away by him, really, as many people were, you know. He's an absolutely wonderful teacher and teacher-actor and everything, really. So I shifted over, really, to, to English. But um, I was slightly inclined. I was sort of divided between English and maths anyway. Dan was the great thing. And uh, do you have any special memories from your time at Prez? 
Well, I suppose just um, class memories, really. Well, the, the, I remember, for example, doing, doing Macbeth, at least uh, um, doing Macbeth for Matric with, with Dan Donovan. And of course, as he introduced each new scene, he kind of acted all the parts in it. I mean, in a very um, unshowy kind of way, but with tremendous kind of um, power and credibility. So that was, that was one of the things. The other thing, the other kind of obvious thing was that uh, in the course of that year, and this is the reason that I moved from Ireland at all, my, my father died um, suddenly in, uh, in March of that year. I was at a football match in Cork with him. So um, what I, what I, what I'm mentioning that because um, the, the teachers were incredibly uh, kind in a kind of sort of personal way. I can remember the, the things that each of them said, you know, um, uh, Freddie Holland and, uh, and Dan Donovan and um, Ike Riley, who did physics, you know. They didn't make a meal of it, but there was a real sense of, um, of, of kindness about their reaction to it. And that was the general environment there, I think. Have you ever thought about maybe how different your life would have been had you not moved to England? Would there have been maybe different opportunities for you? I think that's probably right, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I presume I would have just have, um, maybe I would have gone on to do engineering, though I said about the glass ceiling before. I, I, I did calculus with, um, uh, with Freddie Holland and, and he, was, you know, he was an absolutely exceptional teacher. And he went on to UCC as well as Press, didn't he? I think I reached the point, I'm extremely numerate especially when I was young, you know. So I got, you know, very high marks in intracert in arithmetic, geometry and algebra, you know. But um, I think I was hitting a point where I couldn't kind of deal with the, the conceptualizing of maths anymore. I think I, think I wasn't a, a proper mathematician, really. But on the other hand, I might, one other possibility was, though this was perhaps after I'd gone to England, that I might have gone to UCC to do English and maths, which you could do as a as sort of joint honours, the two honours, course in uh, in the arts faculty and some people did do that so that would have been quite a nice option but after I turned towards English my big my big enthusiasms were English and Latin really which I, I went on being enthusiastic about. When you moved to England did you face like any extra challenges for being a young person um, a young Irish person growing up in England? Well a, a kind of particular one really which was that I went to a, a Catholic grammar school in Manchester you know and a very high proportion of the um, of my contemporaries, uh, this was in you know, this would be the, the in lower six, you know, the year after fifth year in Ireland. Um, uh, a very high proportion of those contemporaries were um, Irish or Polish by family. You know, when the, when the names are read out in the kind of roll call, you know, they're all kind of uh, O'Briens and O'Neills and Loschinskis, uh, you know, which meant that uh, um, with my contemporaries. I mean, the last thing they wanted um, as, they, as they, of Irish descent, were settling down in England in the year of the Beatles, the last thing they wanted was somebody who was a bit like one of their parents, really, in their generation coming in. So an Irish person coming in there, what wasn't the, the sort of state of the art, really. Um, but generally speaking, of course, um, I thought just coming into a school was a relatively protective environment, you know, protected environment. So yeah, I think maybe you didn't encounter the kinds of prejudices that people did on early sites, for example. And did your like love of literature and poetry grow more and more when you were over in England? I think it did, yeah. I, I, had, um, I had very good teachers there too. Um, <clears throat> there was a man called Barney Quinn who, um, who came from Dublin um, and he, he gave me kind of informal lessons. He had to go to his house on Sunday afternoons. And I remember doing things like... Um, 
King Lear and um, Dantre level, you know, um, and um, Beckett and uh, the Four Quartets. So he did quite quite uh, ambitious sort of things I did with him. But it's also taught at uh, at St Bede's at the um, the Catholic Grammar School by a man called Bernard McGarry, again an Irish name, with a kind of a Cambridge graduate, was extremely kind of clever and committed. He was a Levisite, you know, he was a follower of F.R. Levis, which meant that he had a kind of um, a passionately moral view, really, of the subject. And I like that, I think, about English. Can poetry communicate ideas or emotions to people in ways that maybe other media can't? That's an extremely interesting question, I think, really. I'm not sure about communicating ideas exactly. And it is to do with the, um, with the words of, of poems. I think poems, poetry is only one instance of, um, of, uh, of literature and language as a whole, really. It might be perhaps, I might claim to be a kind of intense version of it, but um, it depends what it's doing, doesn't it? I suppose um, communication of the emotion, and there are some subjects that poetry is particularly thought to be good at, isn't there? I mean, you know, love poetry, but also things like um, Tear of Raw in Irish, you know, um, love of country and poetry deals with patriotism and, and love. And I don't know. It's an important, it's a very interesting question. What is your process for writing poems? Like, for example, do you create a narrative or do you think of a theme first? That's a very good question too. I mean, I think I tend to think of, um, you know, some poems, are, they're kind of given, aren't they? You know, they, they, um, something strikes you, you know. There's the old the old exchange about um, uh, whoever it was who said that um, poems are, I have ideas for poems, but um, but uh, but I, I don't write them. And the the poet says poems are made with words, not with ideas. You know, I'm not sure that's true, really. I mean, I think that poems often start with an idea, but uh, mine tend to turn into narratives anyway. It might be the Cork tradition again, really, since the short story is the great Cork form, isn't it? From kind of Corkery to Frank O'Connor, Sean O'Fallon, and, uh, and everybody. So um, I think the natural literary form for uh, for people in Cork is um, is the short story. Well, one of my great influences, in fact, I mean, that it started in that year in Prez, I think, was Frank O'Connor. I, um, I still am really. Um, I'm obsessed with O'Connor's short stories. He's the great practitioner, really. And I think, in a way, the best short stories are not that different from successful poems, and narrative poems, that is, you know. A short Raymond Carver short story is pretty like a narrative poem, really. So I, I think there isn't a fundamental difference between what um, narrative poems anyway do. Do you have, like, any big, clear inspirations for your, po- for your poetry? I, not, not, not in a very particular way, I think. I, mean, I suppose I tend to fall back all the time on the... Uh, on the uh, the exp- my growing my growing up experiences that a lot of people do you know so go back to I suppose the world that I grew up in um, uh, in in North Cork in the 1950s and 60s as historical periods change the subject kind of changes you know and uh, you asked a very interesting question about you know um, the extent to which you know um, uh, the, the setting dictates the the form of the poem, and, and but I, I think that um, it's hard. But it's hard to write about the immediate here and now, you know, especially to write a narrative poem about something that's happening at this moment. 
Um, but to write any kind of poem, maybe, it's much easier to write about things that are at a bit of a, at a, bit of a distance, really. Somebody talked about the kind of polarities, you know, you need at least two things in a poem. One is a, it's kind of setting and the other is what the subject is. And there's a kind of movement between them, you know. We've read your poem, um, Terconitus uh, in class, and I personally really enjoyed it. And I recently saw the film Banshees of Inishirin, and oh, that yes. had a very similar um, theme with the sort of brother and sister sort of connecting, but never really sort of physically like touching each other or physically embracing each other. And yes. So that was in the 1920s. And so I wonder, growing up, did people have a similar sort of attitude in, in, uh, in your experience? Absolutely, yes. I mean, I, I saw the film this week, this week as well, actually, and I can see the, the, the comparison, yeah. It, 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 I mean, you know, I don't want to make big claims for the poem, but I mean, um, it's a very similar situation, in fact, isn't it? In that, um, that you, you kind of trust the relationship between the sister and the brother, who it never gets um, it never gets spelled out, it never gets it never gets expressed at all, really. And there wouldn't be the remotest possibility of them um, embracing or anything like that, you know. And there's a wonderful scene, isn't there? Um, the only time you see, they're both in sort of single beds in their bedroom in the, yep. in the small house, you know. And she he, she's crying, and, and he says, "Are you all right?" She says, "Yes, I'm fine." She says, "The classic Irish family exchange, really." And could you, would you mind reading Terraconitus for us? Well, thank you very much, yes. Um, just just a one remark about the title as well. Um, uh, it, it comes from uh, uh, Aeneid Book 6, you know, um, for, for when Aeneas, with his living body, his physical body, is going through the afterlife, uh, the underworld, uh, he meets his father, Anchises, which is the reason why he's gone down there to meet him, and, and his wife, Creusa, at a different point in Book 2. But... Um, when he when he sees them, he's very kind of um, emotional, and he he tries to embrace them, but his hands just pass through them because of course he is uh, he's taking shadows for real things. He thinks they're physical bodies, but of course they're not. They're just the shades of the dead. And uh, what I'm doing in this poem, I suppose, is, is sort of applying that to the condition you described here, you know, like the sister and brother in the in the film. And Turkana means three times he tried to embrace. You know. Terconatus. Sister and brother, nearly 60 years they'd farmed together, never touching once. Of late, she'd been coping with the pain in her back, realization dawning slowly that it grew differently from the warm ache that resulted periodically from heaving churns onto the milking stand. She wondered about the doctor. When finally she went, it was too late, even for chemotherapy. And still she wouldn't have got round to telling him, except that one night, watching television, it got so bad she gasped and struggled up, holding her waist. Do you want a hand? he asked, taking a step towards her. I can manage, she answered, feeling for the stairs. Three times like that, he tried to reach her. But being so little practiced in such gestures, three times the hand fell back and took its place unmoving at his side. After the burial, he let things take their course. The neighbors watched in pity the rolled up bales standing silent in the fields with the aftergrass growing into them and wondered what he could be thinking of, which was that evening when, 
almost breaking with a lifetime of taking real things for shadows, he might have embraced her with a brother's arms. That was lovely. Thank you, Bernard. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. And do you think that from the time from when you were growing up or even from when you wrote uh, the poem that people have gotten more emotionally expressive? Yes, I think so. Yeah, I, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think we, that that kind of um, distance would be unlikely now. It's a matter of generations, really. I mean, I think that might still be true of, um, of all people, people of, of my age and older, you know. I sometimes say that one of the things that, um, that I'm grateful to England for, and there are quite a lot of them, you know, but one of them is actually learning kind of tactility in a way. Um, I mean, the English think that they're kind of standoffish and uh, unemotional compared to the Italians, for example, say. But they're not unemotional compared to the people I grew up amongst, you know. They're much more forthcoming. And uh, it's one of the things that was striking about um, even in the 1960s, really, in England. Um, the people were much, much more kind of slap, slap happy, you know. Over the pandemic, like the various lockdowns meant that people couldn't physically see each other. Do you think that people felt a similar emotional sort of deficit that the brother in uh, Terraconis felt? I think so, yes. I mean, I think, I, I think we still aren't we kind of um, working through, you know, what the effect of the uh, lockdown was, really. And it was a kind of experience that even people as old as me, you know, had never had anything like in their lives before, you know. And I often used to think that the kind of experience that, say, um, in England, people have gone through the, um, uh, the Second World War, or free, I suppose people of Northern Ireland the, for the past sort of 40 years, it's, their, their experience is kind of completely incomparable for anything that most of us um, had had to experience, you know. But we have had this now different but still major experience which changed the world as we found it. You know, these funny, these extraordinary three years when, you know, when you, people didn't, didn't go to the pictures, you know, didn't get on the bus, didn't do anything. People couldn't meet, you know was an extraordinary thing, wasn't it? It was, it was. Could you tell us a bit about what you taught at Oxford? Yeah, I did the kind of general English degree course, you know, and uh, then I did um, postgraduate work in, in, in medieval English. Yeah. So what I taught mostly was um, Old English and Middle English and the subject, a paper that everybody did, a very good paper actually, called The History of the Language. It wasn't the most popular paper by and large, but in fact, it was a very good way of... Um, of uh, getting a sense of uh, developing history with the language and the literature. Um, uh, so that's, that, that's what I principally taught. But uh, uh, when Irish studies became decidedly kind of central and fashionable in the 19, I suppose the 1980s really, I mean, clearly from the 60s on, the writers like um, you know, Joyce and Yates were the, the center of the curriculum. But from the 1980s onwards, um, Irish studies really became a very big deal, really. I remember going, going to, um, to bookshops in Cork. I remember going to the, um, the Mercier bookshop, you know. I'm going back, I'm back to the 60s again now, I'm afraid. But um, I remember when an Irish studies corner um, started there, you know. It was, it was literature in general, in the normal sort of way, you know, from, from Dickens to the present day kind of thing. But then they, they started having this table in the corner which said, books of Irish interest. And it, was, it took over the whole shop, really. I mean, gradually, over the next 20 to 30 years, it became an absolutely central thing. Anyway, the point is that um, uh, the fact that I had done um, Irish, the Irish language, for Intercert and Matric, and Matric with Dan Donovan, 
I mean, I was already teaching the medieval stuff, but um, there was no, there was nobody in the English faculty in Oxford. I think maybe literally at that point, there was nobody who taught in the English faculty in Oxford who knew the Irish language apart from me, you know, with my kind of school um, Irish from North Cork and Prez. Um, so I got the. I, kept being roped in, you know, to do bits of supervising. So I ended up, uh, yeah, at the last part of my career, I was teaching undergraduates, Old and Middle English, you know, Chaucer and Beowulf, and History of the Language. But I, I was teaching to, notionally to doctoral level, you know, um, people working in Irish studies, because um, knowledge of the Irish language, for a writer like Paul Muldoon, for example, you know, Heaney for that matter too, um, it was a tremendous advantage to know Irish. Not to say that it wasn't a disadvantage not to know Irish, actually, you know? I mean, there's quite a lot of stuff going on. I know Muldoon's poem called Unsure, for example, you know? You can be told in the footnote that Unsure means here, present, you know, on a school roll call. But it's, it's better to know it, you know, um, uh, at first hand kind of thing. So I ended up you know, as, as a notional kind of um, authority, is certainly the wrong word, but uh, and a teacher of the, of, Irish studies broadly, really. How did you uh, get interested or sort of begin to appreciate medieval literature? Yeah, yeah, that's that's a very central question as well. And I think it's, I give the same answer as quite a lot of people would, which is that with a, a, an Irish Catholic, especially countryside background from the 1950s and onwards, uh, you're halfway there anyway, you know, um, religion, the, the, the practice of religion and you know, the Latin mass and all that was so kind of, Central to uh, to the whole of life and to what you did, you know, that uh, when you were choosing areas to um, to specialize in, say the different uh, different periods of English, say, you know, from medieval to Renaissance, to 18th century, 19th century uh, modernism, the natural thing, I mean, the, the thing you you were, you were already equipped to deal with was um, the medieval, really, because um, you'd kind of done it anyway. I remember doing. When I was doing um, graduate work, you know, we did paleography, that's to say, you know, examination of medieval handwriting. But of course, I mean, the, um, the handwriting that we had to um, decipher for reading Old English was, was exactly the, the script that I had used in the 1950s in Omoway School for, um, for, reading, re for reading and writing Irish, you know, uh, the Claude Gaelic, you know, not before the Claude of Honor, you know. So um, you really I mean, in various ways, and they're more important ways as well. I mean, you know, and you did Chaucer and uh, and the Seven Deadly Sins and so on, all of that. But you knew all that anyway. You know, you didn't have to. You didn't even have to study it really, or learn it. You knew it anyway. So you were halfway to Chaucer before you started. Really, big thank you. It's been an honor and an absolute privilege to talk to you today. Well, thank you very much, Ian. And wonderful questions you asked, really. And I've been thinking about them a lot. Thank you. We'll have more poetry later, so do stay tuned. But as we mentioned at the start of the show, we will be segueing between a literary heavyweight and a man who is definitely no stranger to heavyweights. Thomas McCarthy, European powerlifting champion and current Prez sixth-year, joined me and Sam here in the reading room in Prez last week to discuss his inspirational story. We're now joined by the world number one sub-junior powerlifter and reigning European champion, and not to forget, six-year student here in Prez, Thomas McCarthy. Thomas, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for coming on. Thanks for having me. 
Um, for people who might not know, would you explain the sport powerlifting to them? So powerlifting is there's three main lifts. There's the squat, bench, and deadlift. Um, for squat, you have the bar on your back, and you have to get the hip your hip crease when you're squatting down below your knees for it to count. Then there's the bench. Um, it's just you're lying down on a bench and rest on your chest till they give you command to start, and then you press it. And then there's the deadlift, which is you just lift the bar up till it's locked till you're locked out in a standing position. Um, and you're given three attempts at each lift in a competition, so nine attempts overall. And uh, there's medals for squat, bench, and deadlift. Like there's gold, silver, and bronze for each lift. And then your total, which is the most weight you lifted, and all of them added together is your total. And there's that's the o- the overall winner. And how how do you really get into powerlifting, Thomas? Because it's not a sport that a lot of people would be. Yeah, I suppose in. I um I started going to the gym very young. My brother got me into it in like sixth class, so I've been going to the gym nearly seven years now. Um, and during lockdown, um, I always did squat, bench, and deadlift in my gym program, but um, I remember noticing like, well, I wa- wasn't that strong at the time, but I remember just dreaming of like being really strong, so. I looked up the Irish records and saw what they were and um, I entered my first competition um, in August of last year um, and I did fairly well at it. I came third in an under 20 division and kind of just sprung from there. It's just from my own interest really. And just where do you train day to day now? Um, Right now I train in the Riverley Hotel actually just because it's closest to school and it saves time and that's kind of the beauty of powerlifting. You can train in anywhere there's a gym. But um, before the European Championships, I trained in Phenom, which is a gym down by the marina. It's right beside the black market. And uh, it's because they had competition plates and the competition bar. It's kind of different to the normal equipment you'd have in a everyday gym. Just like with powerlifting, obviously, it's a sport that's kind of like foreign to a lot of people just... Is it one that like is as like dangerous or as risky as lots of people think? Um, no, not at all. I actually I don't think I've got a single injury from powerlifting bar. Um, like uh, one time I was putting back weights after I had actually done a session and I just dropped one on my toe. I think that's the biggest injury I've ever gotten. I was just bruised for a while. Like other spar- sports are for- far more dangerous. Just Thomas with. Obviously, the technique is so vitally important. That is something you must have to work on to prevent any injuries or anything, is it? Yeah, definitely. I'm I'm always working on my form. Like, even when I look at videos from, like, two years ago of me lifting, I think my form is terrible, even though it was fine back then. But I'm just constantly improving. And, like, try, like I never lift more than I can, if that makes sense that I never overload my body in any way. Um, and I suppose that's worked for me. I've never got an injury. And in terms of just improving the technique in your training, is that maybe lifting lighter for certain sets and focusing on technique rather than just the strength itself? Or how does that look? So I used to do um, one day a week where it was quite literally just a form day where I'd lift way lighter and just work on my form. But I haven't done that now in a few years. But uh the main thing is I send videos of my heaviest sets of the squat bench and deadlift each day when I'm training to my coach. And um, normally, like, it, the form's perfect, but he might point out, oh, my elbows are 
moving in a way they shouldn't on benches and stuff like that. And I'm always constantly trying to, on bench you're allowed to arch your back and I'm always trying to get like a bigger arch because that reduces the range of motion. And just in terms of that form, there I presume for each lift you have certain just things to always be thinking of for each lift based on the form, is it? Yeah, definitely. When I started, you would kind of have these things called cues, like um, like on the squat, it was uh, start the rep at your knees, so you bend at the knees before your hips and um, stuff like that. Now, I kind of just know from muscle memory, I'm not really thinking of anything when I'm lifting. Um, but yeah, definitely on, on the deadlift, like it's keeping your hips low and close to the bar, but it'll keep your back straighter and stop you from getting in a bad position for your back and on bench it's bend the bar with with your pinkies is a cue that I used to always do and it kind of pulls your shoulders back and rotates them in and it stops them from being in a bad position where they could get injured and so Thomas just for the listener is there any like crazy behind the scenes story maybe that you wouldn't see if you look it up on YouTube or anything just any mad stories well I suppose in the world championships when uh, the deadlift event was starting when I was warming up the because of the way I grip I do a thing called hook grip what my thumb goes under the bar and then my hand grips over my thumb and over the bar so my thumb's kind of locked in and because of the way I grip my skin ripped on my hands as I was warming up um and like they were bleeding and the skin was coming off so I had to cut the skin off with a nail clipper clippers right before my first deadlift attempt and then I had to throw chalk into my open wound because the blood would make the bar slippy in my hands and then on my first attempt they tore even deeper had to throw chalk into it for my second attempt they tore even deeper again then on my third attempt it felt like it was nearly down to the bone and I just threw more chalk into it um, for my third attempt at world championships which was quite painful I can imagine <laughs> quick apologies to our listeners there who don't really like <laughs> a little bit graphic there yeah um, what was it like out at the European Championships, Thomas? What was the experience like? Um, it was amazing. I mean, representing your country is always a huge deal, and especially to do as well as I did. It's something I could never dreamed of. I, I only dreamed of getting like an Irish record in the deadlift, and then to make the Irish team, and then set a world record and win Europeans. It was. It was almost a sense of relief after the after the World Championships because I didn't do as well as I wanted and I felt I let myself down and that was amazing being surrounded by all the Irish coaches and like all the congratulations I got from home and everything was amazing and speaking of the coaches was the the training for the championships was it I presume it was incredibly intense but was it very programmed down to each individual session done yeah it was programmed I have so I have a coach and he he actually lives in Dublin, so he ha- he messaged me everything, and um, yeah, everything's programmed to a T. So you'll be given like oh, you have to do a certain amount of reps on squat, and you're given an RPE, which is a rate of perceived exertion, and so it's on a scale of one to ten. So if you're given a set of three at RPE eight, it's um you do three reps of a squat. Uh, that's eight out of ten difficulty for you. So you might have a rep or two in the tank um after you're done your third rep. Um, did you find it difficult to stay on your weight limit for the competitions? Yeah, I struggled almost because I normally weigh around the 90 kilo mark every morning. or So I walk around like 92 kilos most days. 
Um, but I had to make my under under 83 weight class or else I won't be allowed to compete. So um, I cut down um, by counting my calories. I cut down just two kilos to 88 kilos. And then the week of the competition, I did a mix of a water cut and a thing called a gut cut. So, um, so I basically ate food with no fiber. Um, so there was no food just still in my system. So that cut me down two or three kilos. And then for three days, five days out from the competition, I had 12 liters of water a day. Um, and that's cause your body thinks it's, it needs to get, it needs to get rid of all this water, but that combined with not having water the day before the competition, you drop, you flush out all the water in your body and you drop a load of weight and I ended up weighing an 82.5 with like 500 grams to spare. So on your day to day life now, kind of what's your diet looking like? Um, my diet is fairly like, it isn't, you don't have to be as strict with your diet as some people think. I just aim for five to 10, um, portions of fruit and veg a day. And then I just get as much protein as I can, which for me, the ideal amount is about, it's about two grams per kilo of body weight. So I aim for anywhere between 180 grams of protein to 200 grams of protein a day. What's a cheat day look like for you, Thomas? Um, well, I don't really have them. Like I'd still have chocolate bars and stuff like like I'd have a chocolate bar before training just to get sh- sugar in me but like I'd still go out to eat like the odd weekend and stuff I don't really I never really have a certain day that I plan out to be a cheat day I just relatively what I want but while reaching my protein and five to ten a day what kind of protein are you intaking then Thomas um normally I try and get my protein from food so I'd have protein yogurts or chocolate protein pudding is my favorite thing you can get them in Duns or you can get them in most shops. I also have lots of meat, chicken, red meat, all sorts of stuff with my dinner. Like my lunch, I have a packet of turkey rashers and I have two protein yogurts, so that's seventy grams of protein in my school lunch. And then some evenings, if I notice um, that I haven't had much protein during the day, I may have a protein shake, but they're not essential at all. So Thomas, obviously you have your European Championship title and you have the world ranking number one title. What's next for you? Where do you go from here? Um, so I haven't won a world championships yet and that's definitely a dream of mine. Um, I don't think any Irish male powerlifters ever won a world championships and I think I was the first to win a European championships as a male. But um, yeah, that's definitely my goal since I didn't do as well as I wanted in the world championships this year so obviously thomas powerlifting is an olympic sport at the moment but if down the line it came into the olympic sport could you see yourself trying to compete for it definitely that'd be amazing to do would be a dream of mine to compete at the olympics i hope that happens that it comes into the olympics it's not an olympic sport at the moment but olympic weightlifting is with the different lifts is is there a good chance that powerlifting will be brought in, in your opinion? or um, In my opinion, I don't think it will because um, the next Olympics is going to be the last Olympics with Olympic weightlifting um, due to doping problems in that sport. Whereas powerlifting is slightly different um, as in there's tested and non-tested. I'm obviously in a tested federation so I can get drug tested. Whereas with the Olympics, there's no non-tested and tested. It's just all tested. So they have lots of problems with drug testing as people don't have a choice um, which to compete in. 
Just on doping, Thomas, what are your opinions on that with people who do take steroids to improve their performance? Well, I think if they're in a tested sport, they obviously shouldn't. It's cheating. Um, but uh, I think that if they're competing in a, non, a, a non-tested federation, like in powerlifting, um, where it's allowed, um, I think there's no problem with it if they want to do that to their body. And just with training well during the leaving sir Thomas, are you struggling with that at the moment? Is that something you're planning for? Um, yeah, well, so I was doing five sessions a week um, during summer and then I cut it down to four when school started. And since the European Championships, I've cut it down to three, three times a week now. So I won't be making as much progress, but I definitely need the, the study. Well, Thomas, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a a fascinating discussion. Um, we're all incredibly impressed here in Prez, in Ireland even, um, with your many achievements and just the best of luck in all your future endeavours now. Thanks very much for having me. Well, Brian, a really incredible story there. A self-made champion here in Prez and an inspiration to many a student here. Definitely, Sam. Couldn't agree more. It's time for some more poetry, I think, though. Well, Brian, an English teacher here in Prez, Miss Kaylee Whelan, joins us with an original poem she wrote herself. You're very welcome to the show, Miss Whelan. Could you give us a brief outline of uh, your chosen work before you read it first, please? Thank you very much. Uh, thanks for having me, guys. Um, so I was actually planning to read a different poem um, than this, but earlier in the week there was a new story that kind of prompted this. There was a man found in Mallow in a house, and it turned out he'd actually... He had died 20 years um, previous and hadn't been found. And I just found it kind of so sad, but also, I don't know, hoping that something nice could come from it. So his name was Tim O'Sullivan. And the only way they could kind of, from the beginning, figure out how long he'd been there was because he had a tub of butter in the fridge that had an expiry date of 2001. Um, and then they were able to identify him. So it just kind of struck me that, you know, people have been passing by this house and, you know, never thought to maybe check in and made me sad. But then, like I said, also made me want to kind of take some some hope from it, maybe. This is called Passerby. That morning, did you check the best before and think you'd be scraping the tub well before 2001? Did you place it in the fridge without a second thought, not knowing that your time had come? Had you made plans to have a visitor after all these years? to finally talk about the battles that had been scaring your mind? Did you then have to hope from beyond that they would stay away, to save them, us, from the horror of what they would find? A memory of a person, ivory cracking in a room forgotten, never again to be cold but still tucked up in bed. I suppose he was always a bit odd, never talked much. We all thought he had gone off to fix his head. Were the excuses and shamed whispers of neighbours as they placed flowers at the suddenly visible door, when all you wanted was a knock, a hello through the letterbox, just anything, just earlier, just a little bit more. I hope your scars healed as you pass through this world. I hope you can see the flowers, even with the guilt behind the gesture. I'm sorry that you had to be forgotten before you were found, but the door is open now for you to begin your final adventure. Thank you so much, Miss. We'll follow that up now with one from Mr. Olinchig's vast archives. Here's American novelist Willie Vlaughton reading one of his favourite poems. He's an author of five novels, shortlisted for the Penn Faulkner Award, and of course the writer of Lean on Pete, which has been made into a critically acclaimed film. The poem I'm going to read is Hey for the Horses by Gary Snyder, and um, I think I like this poem so much. Um, it's very simple. It's a story-driven poem, and I think uh, 
there's nothing worse, in my opinion, than than baling hay or moving hay around. And so this one always just makes me laugh. He had driven half the night from far down San Joaquin through Mariposa, up the dangerous mountain roads and pulled in at 8 a.m. with his big truckload of hay behind the barn. With winch and ropes and hooks, we stacked the bales up clean to splintery redwood rafters, high in the dark, flecks of alfalfa whirling through the shingle cracks of light, itch of hay dust in the sweaty shirt and shoes. At lunchtime, under black oak, out in the hot corral, the old mare nosing, lunch pails, grasshoppers crackling in the weeds. I'm 68, he said. I first bucked hay when I was 17. I thought that day I started, I sure would hate to do this all my life. And damn it, that's just what I've gone and done. Wonderful stuff there, Sam. Do you think we've time for one more poem before we move to comedy? Well, for sure, Brian. And if it's comedy we're turning to, let's hear from gift grub legend and star of his very own podcast, Mario Rosenstock, on his favourite poem. Well, this is called On the Ning Nang Nong by Spike Milligan. On the Ning Nang Nong, where the cows go bong and the monkeys all say boo. There's a Ning Nong Ning, where the trees go ping and the teapots jibber jabber jew. On the Nong Ning Nang, all the mice go clang and you just can't catch them when they do. So it's Ning Nang Nong, cows go bong, Nong Nang Ning, trees go ping, Nong Ning Nang, the mice go clang. What a noisy place to belong is the Ning Nang Ning Nang Nong. Who better to introduce our comedy sketch than Mr. Rosenstock himself? And now, you'll remember the controversy over the recent late release of the Junior Cert results, Brian. How could I forget, Sam? I just wonder what some of our famous football pundits would make of it. Let's go over to the studio and find out. Thanks, Brian. I'm here with Gary Neville, Jamie Carragher, Mick McCarthy and Roy Keane. We've just heard that the results of the Junior Cert are set to release on the 23rd of November. Gary, what's your take on all of this? Thanks, Dave. Look, it's clear that it's gotten worse and worse. Their standards have dropped, their heads have dropped. That commission is absolutely rotten to the very core. It's an absolute farce. The standards in the school, it's falling apart. This is the SEC. Thanks, Roy. Uh, Jamie, do you sympathise with the SEC at all, or do you feel the same way as Roy? Look, I feel for the SEC. It's a tough time. It's been a tough year. Covid, the war in Ukraine. What are you talking about, the war in Ukraine? Do, do me a favour, what's that got to do with the junior cert, man? Look, they've got the whole summer off. What are they playing at? Listen, we all know that the SEC has been destroyed by the Glazier family. I mean, the government, excuse me. They've got financial-minded people in charge of educational decisions and it's not good enough from this football club educational commission. This is the SEC. They're in serious trouble and someone's going to have to give soon. Very, very soon. Thanks for that, Gary. But here we have former Irish player and manager Mick McCarthy. Thanks for joining us, Mick. Do you feel the same way as Roy? Let's have it right. They need that break. They work hard and deserve the holiday. I remember my holidays from when I was a teacher. I taught geography back in the 80s. I needed those holidays. I'd go home back to Barnsley. I used to mine coal and feed horses. They weren't my horses, but I was a good man for my sins. That coal was vital to the town. If I didn't have that break, Barnsley would have fallen apart. When people got hungry, they'd eat the coal. When people got cold, they'd eat the coal. What do you mean? Coal? It's actually very nutritious, Roy. Coal's much more important than the junior set. 
More important the junior certificate. Mick, you're delusional. This is the SEC. You haven't changed in 20 years, man. There are thousands of teenagers out there waiting on their results, and you're talking about coal. This is the SEC. Do me a favour, man. What are you talking about? This is the SEC. This is the SEC. Shut up, Gaddy. Well, I think we better wrap this up before we get any flying chairs flying around the place. Uh, back to the boys in the studio, Brian. Hilarious, Sam. A lot less shouting in that studio than there is in this one. I'm a bit more safe here. I'm really looking forward to what those guys will be discussing on our next podcast. Before we go to our film segment, Sam, there's time for two more poems. Who's up next? Well, again, from Mr. Olinchig's great archives, here's the iconic hurling goalkeeper from here in Cork, an All-Ireland winner, Cloyne Mann, Donal O'Cusack. Hello, my name is Donal O'Cusack. The poem I've chosen is Invictus by William Ernest Henley. And the reason I've chosen that poem and why it resonates with me is, I suppose, I would have strong beliefs that whilst we're all born into different situations, different environments, different parts of the world, it's really up to ourselves as people and men to determine our own destiny. And I understand all of those different situations can influence you and, you know, you are maybe forced to live within certain parameters, but even within those parameters, it's still up to you to, uh, to be in control of your own actions and, as I said, determine your own destiny. Invictus. Out of the night that covers me, black is the pit from pole to pole. I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the failed clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloodied, but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrought and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not who straight the gate, how charged with punishments to scroll. I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. And finally, one of our own, Mr. Dave O'Reardon, English teacher here in Prez, and a former student as well, with the poem he crafted himself. Welcome, Mr. O'Reardon. Can you give just a brief background to the poem before you read it to us? Hi, Sam. Um, basically, I wrote this poem uh, shortly after the birth of my first uh, child. Well, sir, that sounds great. I can't wait to hear it. Creation. The clock ticks. A labyrinth of cells on us within as she, the intermediary between two worlds, gently courses you along the natural path to creation. I stand clumsy and idle. What now is my purpose but to stare in awe? Your link to the greater world physically manifests. A little miracle appears as power and fragility preternaturally fuse into a distilled moment of sublime grace. Slowly, I rejoin my body as she leaves yours, as again the clock ticks slower. Thank you to our frequent contributor, Mr. O'Reardon. You're becoming part of the show here, sir. So finally, on PBC Podcasts, we turn to film. And here's Kino Mani with his take on Martin Scorsese's seminal film, Taxi Driver. What happens when the most vulnerable in our society have no safety net? When does cleaning up the streets go too far? And at the end of it all, does anything we do even matter? Today I'll be talking about a movie that sparked the attempted assassination of a US president. 
Released in 1976, directed by Martin Scorsese and starring Robert De Niro, Taxi Driver is about Travis Bickle, the titular taxi driver, who is played by De Niro. He is unable to sleep, upset with the filth of the streets he drives through each night. The movie nowadays is considered a classic, but when it first came out it had a lot of controversies associated with it, the first starting before the movie even released. Taxi is a, a very violent film, with a lot of blood and aggressive behaviour, especially at the end. This meant the movie received an X rating in the US, which meant reduced audiences. After the film was booed at the Cannes Film Festival, Scorsese changed the colour grading of the movie to make the blood less apparent. The new edit allowed the film to be released in cinemas with an R rating. Scorsese was happy with this change, but the original film, without the muted colours, has deteriorated over time and has been lost. The film released and was received very well, despite the controversy. It made $28.3 million at the box office in the US alone, which is worth over €150 million Euro today. This is a massive profit over the movie's $1.9 million, or just over €9.5 million Euro budget, which was so small that many of the people involved had to take reduced salaries so that the movie would actually be made. The film was nominated for Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Supporting Actress and Best Original Score at the Oscars. Won none, however, perhaps due to the previously mentioned controversies, but this would not be the end of De Niro's history with the Academy Awards. He later won Best Actor for Raging Bull, another Scorsese film, in 1980. However, the film will be brought back into the public's eye when in 1981, John Hinckley Jr. tried to assassinate the US President. Hinckley became obsessed with Taxi Driver when he saw it, even started stalking Jodie Foster, a member of the cast. When he realised he would not impress her this way, he had decided to try and kill then-US President Jimmy Carter. He was eventually arrested in Tennessee. He received therapy and treatment for his mental condition, but it did not improve. He eventually left a note to Jodie Foster before he made a choice that would define the rest of his life. On the 30th of March, 1981, John Hinckley Jr. left a note. It stated, Over the past seven months, I've left you dozens of poems, letters and love messages in the faint hope you could develop an interest in me. Although we talked on the phone a couple of times, I've never had the nerve to simply approach you and introduce myself. The reason I'm going ahead with this attempt now is because I cannot wait any longer to impress you. This attempt, he mentions, is an attempt on Ronald Reagan's life. At half past two that day, as Reagan was leaving a hotel, Hinckley shot six shots from a revolver. He hit press secretary James Brady in the head, police officer Thomas Delahanty in the chest and secret servant agent Tim McCarthy also in the chest. One bullet also ricocheted when it hit the presidential limousine and hit Reagan right in the chest. Thankfully, nobody died and Hinckley was not able to harm anyone else. Hinckley was brought to court and the movie was actually shown during the trial. This led to him being found innocent by reason of insanity. He was put in psychiatric care for 40 years. I was first introduced to Taxi Driver after watching some of Scorsese's more recent films and instantly fell in love with it. I think the script is great and it created possibly one of the most memorable lines in all of cinema being You talking to me? talking to me? Well, then who the hell else are you talking to? Talking to me? Well, I'm the only one here. I also love the cinematography, my favourite shots being those that look into the mirror in the taxi. These shots show you both Travis and his passenger, almost through Travis's eyes. I see this as a metaphor for how disconnected Travis is from himself, viewing himself as just another passenger in the taxi he drives. However, the standout feature for me is De Niro's acting. The way he portrays the rage trapped inside Travis is very subtle but perfect. He's able to show so much with just his eyes which makes him a great fit for the role. 
Taxi Driver is a movie directed by one of the greatest directors of all time. I think no movie has ever captured these themes as well as it has. It's available on Netflix right now, and I think that you should go watch it. Yeah, I'm talking to you. And that's a wrap on this episode, Sam. It's been another great show, and can I just say a quick thank you to all our guests who've come on. Absolutely, Ryan. And now, to round us out, we have a short interview taken a few years back with Liam Lynch, the inspiration for our previously mentioned Poetry for the Blind project. Mr. Lynch, from Knocknagoshal, County Kerry, is a man who lost his sight incredibly young, while still in his 30s, and inspired the poetry theme of this episode of the podcast. I'm Sam. I'm Brian. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. All my life, I have loved poetry and have a deep interest in its meaning. I never knew this until I went blind, because it was then that the poems really reacted into my mind, because through poetry I began to understand the true feelings within my soul and in my mind. And through poetry I became, I learned to adapt to a new world. And I have my own favourite quotation for this. Uh, Poetry is indeed the eyes of the blind. It overcomes every language in the world. You don't have to know Chinese or anything else to understand the poetry. It's the language of the world. And its beauty is always realised by the youngest to the very oldest. In my time, I, once I went blind, I went back to school. I was challenged for the first time at 60 years of age to stop to learn adaptive technology. But into our classroom came a teacher, Anne Kennelly, and she asked us to go and produce a show called Hidden Voices from the Dark. Six shows that brought the interest of all the news media around Ireland because for the first time blind people were uh, on the stage of shame satira and I remember the first day when we completed the show I turned to my brother Paddy the Lord Emerson and said we are not for going away Paddy this is for the future in that moment of hidden voices from the dark project we on, uh, were to write a poem for a little program called uh, Cosella, one foot, then another step, one step, two steps. And in order to enhance the show, we wrote a poem about what our life was like. This was written and would facilitate Paddy Kennedy. I knew, always knew out there in my life that there was a challenge. So we called this poem uh, The Challenge. It was the week before Christmas, 1953. And I now recite for you a very true meaning poem to everybody who has suffered some little tragedy in their life and something very small and something very great. But the challenge is always there. The person in this challenge I refer to is you, is the imposter. And that's the basis of the full part of this program. So here, from my heart, and thanks to my friends in Shemsatira and the few people who gathered around on that Christmas in 1953, 
and wrote the following poem, The Challenge. The first day I met you, I was angry. I was afraid. I thought to myself, why me? Maybe, if I ignored you, you'd go away. But you insisted. You stayed an unwelcome guest. I did not like you hanging around me, but I had to put up with you. Getting to know you over time, I knew I would have to beat you at your game. Then I took you on in the tunnel of fear. My God, you held me back. We struggled backwards, forwards, up and down, never winning, never losing, until the day I accepted your hand and slowly you led me towards the flickering light. The challenge to my life had come to an end conclusion. I was a free man. I had accepted my blindness and all my classmates said the very same. Once you accept something for what it is and you cannot change it, you move along in to life. And as I said when I went to the Holy Well in Coolard, for I thank God for what had happened to me. I was in the wooded area, drinking the water, when I almost heard these words from the sky. Liam, you'll never be blind, because through the eyes of your friends you will always see. Thank you, boys and